Welcome to episode nine of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. We are back with part two of how to navigate challenging situations in corporate real estate series. Uh, before we jump in, a lot has happened in the news over the last two weeks. John, why don't you lead us off with your article about what's happening with Blackstone? Yeah, I thought this was interesting. This is just from uh, last week, this gal, Nicole Goodkind at CNN. What a name, Goodkind. Um, and it's titled, Blackstone is the latest victim of the weakening commercial real estate market. And there's three things I want to point out in this article. Thing number one is just the idea that it can happen to Blackstone. I mean, they're the, literally the world's largest owner of commercial real estate. So if it can happen to them, there's really no avoiding it. Um, what happened to them? Distributable earnings fell 58% since last year. Profits from sales fell 54% from $9.5 billion to $4.4 billion. Still big numbers. But the point is... It's happening even to Blackstone. Thing number two in this article that I thought was super interesting was where they said, don't worry, we'll be fine, um, that they've diversified their investments. And that whereas in 2007, 61% of their assets were office space, um, last year they've reduced that down to just 2% of their holdings. Super interesting. Okay, so when did they do that? How early did they see office becoming an issue? Um, that's thing number two. Thing number three is this idea where they say um, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and turmoil in the sector has created opportunity for Blackstone. They're out talking to these smaller banks to help them lend to their clients as they look to tighten up their credit. It goes on to say the banking crisis and the bank's subsequent retreat from loose lending policies could create a golden moment for credit and provide more opportunity for Blackstone to provide financing. Now that's a sweet pivot, right? Um, it's also a reminder that even in a up market and down market, there's always opportunity if you if you know how to play it. So uh, I thought that was super interesting. I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, in terms of who Blackstone competes with for their real estate funds, right? They're competing against a real estate benchmark, right? They're not competing against tech stocks or something like that. And of course, uh, institutional investors might have portfolio allocations that change over time. But Blackstone's really competing against KKR's real estate fund, Carlisle's real estate fund, Cohen and Steers, and some of these other giant real estate funds to make sure that as far as a asset allocation for a pension fund or endowment, that they're getting their money with the smartest people in real estate. And I think that Blackstone over time has proven that they sort of can see around the corner. I mean, to take office space from 60% to 2%, over essentially a decade period. I mean, it might have even happened faster than that. And to move into industrial uh, data centers, life sciences, rental housing, including multifamily, but also single family homes is really impressive. Um, a, a couple things on Blackstone. I mean, one of the reasons that profits from sales is, has basically been cut in half it's not necessarily that they've taken uh, you know, massive write downs, right? Profit from sales are only realized transactions. And we all know that transaction volume has fallen precipitously. So it'd be interesting to see what kind of markdowns has BREIT taken uh, either like publicly and shared with their investors or at least internally that they're forecasting. I mean, if you own real estate, as we talked about in last episode, and you haven't been able to increase rents meaningfully, then you've undoubtedly taken a markdown just because of how interest rates have changed. Uh, but yeah, really interesting article. Uh, what I wanted to share too is that this 
uh, this time of challenge for Blackstone with some of their you know worst performance of the last decade, which I think to clarify, worst performance of the last decade, uh, they've had phenomenal performance basically the entire decade. So worst performance is you know on a relative basis could just be mediocre returns, but you know have, having a challenging time also comes at the same moment where they've just finished raising the largest ever fund in the history of the world, right across any asset class, private equity, private credit, anything. So this is Blackstone uh, Real Estate Partners 10, and it's a $30 billion fund. And they're hoping to be able to come in, and John, as you said, you know, partnering with community banks, things like that, and being this uh, liquidity source when there might not be a lot of liquidity. So uh, pretty fascinating that this downturn coincides with the largest ever capital raise and, you know, something that the global head of real estate of Blackstone was on the record talking about is that they've been fairly slow to distribute this capital, right? They can't go raise Blackstone Real Estate Partners 11 until they distribute probably 70 or 80 percent of this capital and they're deploying it slowly. And that says very strongly to the market that the difference between the bid ask spread on assets is too large for Blackstone to be a buyer at, at levels and returns they're comfortable with. So my question to the group is, when do we think that changes, right? Is it end of year where Blackstone starts deploying like crazy? And then also, if you have somebody with $30 billion, in addition to many other funds that have a ton of money on hand to be able to buy distressed assets or assets at a, at a discount to you know the 2021 market, what happens when all that money is coming in buying the dip, right? How can the market really go down if there's, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of capital earmarked for real estate investments that are meant to buy the dip? The dip never happens in some instances when that amount of capital exists on the sidelines. I was just going to say it, it, it happens when the ask comes down. We talked about it before on the podcast where we're in this moment of price discovery and uncertainty around pricing. So that's why Blackstone's proceeding slowly. When when they deploy their capital, I believe, is when the ask comes down. Yeah, and I'm going to just take a step back to John's point. What I find interesting of the article is because of the requirements of the REITs to mark their portfolios to market, the it's the analysts are looking at them as a, as a leading indicator of the overall market. So for Blackstone to suffer... Uh, the pains of this commercial real estate market, to me, is an indicator of the pain to come in the in the private sector, which controls a vast majority of of assets out there. Right? If you look at real estate, uh, commercial real estate as a total asset class, REITs don't own the majority of it. So, I think there's a lot more pain to come in in um, the community banks in. Uh, private owners, private investors that own real estate that don't have the same requirements to mark their assets to market that the REITs do. So we'll, I think, to forward that into your point, Tucker, how does that, you know, when is the time to buy the dip? I think with Blackstone and the other REITs suffering uh, as the leading indicator of where the market is going, I think we've still got a lot of pain in the system before, you know, I think anyone's going to turn around and stop buying personally. The other interesting thing here, too, is that this $30 billion fund to buy the dip, uh, they are they have publicly said that they are planning to not buy uh, much office space at all. So you start thinking about that. There's all of this rescue capital available in these other asset classes. And that same amount of capital is very unlikely to exist, at least at an institutional level, to buy these office buildings. 
which means that the ask has to come down a lot, lot further before I think you would start seeing these institu institutional buyers uh, transition their strategy and transition the, um, you know, the, the capital that they raised was probably raised with the pitch of, hey, these are the asset classes we're going to invest in and here's why. And you have to see a pretty large dislocation for a fund manager to go to its investors and say, hey, we know you gave us this money to do X, but we're actually going to do Y. But perhaps that happens if office values you know, deflate so enormously that there's a huge return to be garnered. I think, and I think the office values, you know, there are markets where they've already kind of course or mark to market as to where they should be. And I think there's others that they have not. Um, and it's just kind of like the, you know, for example, Seattle, downtown Seattle has a tremendous amount of vacancy. And there are many owners that are doing deals relative to where deals should be done at, given the amount of vacancy and the amount of vacancy yet to come. But then there's markets, you know, like example, Bellevue here in Washington, which is on the other side of Lake Washington. In that market has yet to correct in the way it should have um, by now. And just last week, Microsoft announced they're putting another half a million square feet on the sublease market. They've already given back 1.7 million feet of office space to the market. Um, they're paring back the amount of construction they were doing on the new campus. Um, so I think to Blackstone's point, there's still a lot of pain to come in some of these markets that they really want to be in. Um, and it's interesting because like things will kind of normalize. I mean, look at the housing market. One would think that in most areas of the country right now, housing would be at historic lows in terms of its pricing. Well, the fact of the matter is, the, the, the given where interest rates are and given where people can sell at, inventory is, is actually pretty low right now. So just given the lack of inventory for buyers, the market started to stabilize, I've noticed, um, throughout Western cities, even including Phoenix, which for a long time was kind of a white hot housing market. So I think that's gonna happen. Um, as we move through this process, but we still have a lot of pain to endure. Oh, and the other thing to keep in mind on single family housing that is a little different than commercial real estate is that people need homes to live in, right? And even though the single family home market is determined a lot more today by investor appetite than it did a decade or two decades ago when the percentage ownership of the single family home market in the US was, you know, legitimately, I mean, it could have been 50x, 100x lower what it is now as single family rentals has become this massive asset class. I think the difference is that uh, if you're buying a home right now at a high price, you're buying it because you need somewhere for your family to live. Whereas if you're buying a commercial real estate investment right now, you're buying it to get a return. And the alternative to that is that you could buy a treasury at a 5% yield. So we'll see. I mean, it's great news that the, you know, for those of us that, that own homes, which all of us on the call I know do, but uh, it's great news for you know people that currently own homes that we're not, it, it's very unlikely we're going to see crazy swings in value, particularly in supply constrained markets because people have long-term low interest rate mortgages and nobody wants to sell. Brian, I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about life sciences too. Yeah, just as you start to think about the REITs talking about the diversification out of office, I know Boston Properties has has made it a point to talk about how they've they've um, focused more in the life science sector. The the challenge there is the underlying demand coming out of 2021 2022 is slowing significantly. So it'll be interesting to see. And a lot of the product is is development, right? Because the the core markets were pretty full 
and a lot of the new demand from these REITs was coming in the form of new development and um, and everything else was was just being traded at just astronomical valuation so with the with the underlying demand decreasing um, you know we went from a market that had zero here in Boston zero subleases on the market 18 months ago to over 60 with more coming every day so as you start to underwrite some of these assets in future development you know there's a there's certainly a lot of softness in that sector and a lot of um, you're seeing it too in the funding side so so when is it going to end and how do you you know how do you find a home for 30 billion in in capital it's it's it'll be interesting how they approach it uh, where if, if office is off the table being such a major part of of the asset class in commercial real estate, how do you know how do companies or how do these funds look at it? It'll be interesting to see. Isn't it crazy to think how quickly that happened in the life science space? I mean, it was effectively January of this year, and the music just stopped. And now all of a sudden, you've got all these subleases competing, and the, the landlords who are trying to hold on to contract rental rates to protect their building values. You know, the subleases are nothing about that. They're, they'll cut the rates, whatever it takes to get that space sublet, stop the bleeding. That's a brutal situation that came on very, very quickly. And we're tracking subleases in every life science market and they're through the roof. Well, frankly, I mean, we should have seen this coming in the sense that during the pandemic, nobody was going to the office, but lab companies needed lab space because you can't practice science from your kitchen table. So all these developers were chasing office buildings that could worthy a conversion to life science. We added a tremendous amount of supply in addition to what was already constructed. And then as people know that work in the life science industry, like those of us, they're so dependent on funding when funding starts to dry up or rather just be hard to achieve, um, it's just a perfect storm. So this whole notion that there's a flight to investment dollars going to life science is gonna dry up pretty quickly. It already is kind of uh, significantly and it's all a result of supply and demand, oversupply and lack of demand. Yeah, and in Boston, interesting enough, everyone is, you know, this is a national story. What What are you gonna do with all this somewhat obsolete or obsolete office space that doesn't have any demand for it. And over the last couple of years here, we've seen a massive amount of office space, office buildings come out of inventory and are slated for conversion. Some of them have gone through the process. Some of them were bought at valuations that only will allow for life science conversion that haven't started yet. Others are, you know, somewhere in the process and they're trending towards delivery and, you know, this year or next. So, We've seen, you know, I know in the North Market here, we saw I think between a two and a three percent reduction in vacancy because of the underlying inventory changing overnight, effectively. So it was pretty a pretty interesting phenomenon when you know you have you have a thirteen percent market that goes to you know eight or nine percent just because you change the underlying uh, inventory of the of the overall market. So pretty cool. Brilliant. So you're saying that the vacancy rate for office space came down because the denominator lowered as they took office inventory out of inventory and called it life science space. Exactly. Yeah. Slated for conversion. Beyond conversion, there, pardon me for sounding doom and gloom, but there's going to be buildings out there that will just get demolished. They don't convert. And so I look at, I do real estate transactions, as you guys know, all over the country. I get into cities and I look at buildings and I'm like, who would want to be there. I mean, if you're going to ask your employees to come back, asking them to go there is far worse off than being at home in terms of a quality of life perspective. And so there are buildings that just don't convert. And even if they do, 
the reality is this, it's always going to feel like an office building that was converted to multifamily. Okay. It's not going to feel like this was a design to be a multifamily building. And so who wants to take that risk of develop, delivering a multifamily building that is subpar in terms of everything in terms of something that was new or newer designed specifically for multifamily and developers are going to start to realize that that office building that was built in the eighties is functionally obsolete and it's better just to tear it down and redevelop it. Maybe multifamily, maybe something else, but that's going to happen. And I know that's an extreme view. Um, but I can tell you there's buildings here in Seattle that I can't imagine having a client expressing any interest at any cost to be in those specific buildings. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about this, Owen, and, and it continues to come up. What are you going to do with this inventory? And what I came up with, having done transactions all over the country as well, is, you know, look at history and look at some of the cities that have gone through this. I think it's one is going to take a real lot of pain. But my experience, look at downtown Pittsburgh and look at downtown Cleveland. If you try to do a deal there, and I did 15 years ago, you were going and it was, you know, you didn't want to be out at night in some of the some of these downtown neighborhoods. You come back to today, they've demolished a ton of those old product and the cities had to get pretty ugly. And Pittsburgh had the, you know, had the, the Marcellus Shale boom and oil and gas just transformed that city. Cleveland, it was, a, I think, a slower process, but the downtowns have come around and there's a lot of new residential. There's a lot of new uh, hospital or or specialty type space. There's a lot of new amenity type spaces, casinos. But it took a lot of pain and the cities had to get pretty bad. But they they finally bit the bullet and did it. And they transformed. If you go to either one of them, I'm impressed when I go to those cities now. it's They're nice. They have hotels. They have entertainment. They have quality space, quality place where people live. I know Milwaukee's another one. Um, Minneapolis is another one. Like that, these neighborhoods transformed, but and they just had to go in and take down entire blocks of just trash and stuff that's just not going to lease. And and they've really been able to transform these cities. And I think that's going to happen to to major cities like Boston, New York City, Seattle, L.A. And it's who knows how long it's going to take to get there. But uh, I think eventually that that'll be the solution long term. So. So as we've been talking about, you know, where where we're going to go with these office buildings, a pretty interesting phenomenon that I've been thinking about here in, in Boston has come up. So the and this is where my article is. So there's the, the title is Small Towns Chase America's Three Trillion Climate Gold Rush. And it's really around clean tech and where the clean tech around the um, Inflation Reduction Act has really just created an entire industry overnight that's kind of been percolating kind of below the scene. But now it is on every street corner. It, there are massive amounts of companies and funding and, and just truly an amazing for, for a market like New England and Boston, where we've got so much incubator and so much just brain power around, around clean tech. It is amazing how quickly this industry has turned on the spigot and they are they are growing like crazy. So I think personally, I think there's a couple of things. One is there's a, there's a good opportunity to turn some of these office buildings into incubators, into clean tech space, and into something around um, this industry to help them and grow them and support them. Because I, what I'm seeing is that companies that are in the market today, 
they are looking at, and, and this is truly important to have a real strong team um, working on these requirements because there's a component to them that is lab, that is, that is R&D lab, but it's not life science lab. And in this market, we've seen a lot of buildings that have come off the market and have been converted to life sciences, and they want rents that are you know, 60, 70, 80 plus per square foot per month for anyone on the West Coast. Um, and, but they have infrastructure that, that, does, that is, is overkill for, for the clean tech industry. So there was, there was two deals that were done in the market here. One of them was in an office building that was converted. And it's been brought up, the base building has been brought up to meet the clean tech needs. Another one is a building that was converted. And it was, it's truly a life science building. And in the delta in the rents is like $30 a square foot because the basis is so much higher. And the company didn't need it. They're, they're taking, you know, they're taking a, um, a space that just is overbuilt for them. And, they, and, and they're, they're going to pay for it in terms of their rent. The other side of it is we're seeing these companies go and look at the cheapest space on the market, warehouse space. And... Their requirements are true manufacturing or R and D, and then they're going to go in there and they, and they don't even realize it. They're they're doing deals and they've got to go put a hundred dollars a foot to the base building just to get it to the point where they can actually operate and do their do their work. So there's there's a an interesting um, phenomenon happening. This this segment hasn't really been um, tended to by the by the market yet. It's a little bit below. Or, or significantly below life sciences, a little bit more than your standard delivery of an office or or warehousing building or even you know light manufacturing. And it needs there's a segment that needs to be uh, tended to that is that there's a gap right now. So it'll be interesting, and, and good advisors need to identify that and really and really leverage landlords um, in the marketplace to deliver the right base building. And I don't think that's happening widespread at the moment. What I wanted to point out, you said 60 70 $80 per month. You know, what you meant was per year. Per year, sorry. Not per month uh, for the people on the West Coast. That's per year. Okay. Well, good covering some of the latest happenings in commercial real estate. Let's jump into the meat of the episode, continuing with part two of navigating challenging situations in corporate real estate. Um, the topic that I wanted to start with is we all represent companies that have unique and challenging uses from time to time. And when there are variances in the zoning and what your client is actually going to do, how do you handle that? I mean, there's, there's all, there's all types of scenarios here and I'd, I'd love to cover it, you know, at a high level and maybe we can go into more detail some other time, but you think about the mechanics of negotiating a lease when you only want the lease to be effective if there's a conditional use permit. If it's a hot market, how do you get the landlord to engage on a deal that they won't know if it's binding or not for potentially six months? So I'd love to, to dive into that. What do you do to validate that the zoning works? Once you validate that it works and it doesn't work and you need to make a change, how do you approach that in both the negotiations and diligence? I'll take a shot at that. I, I've had that experience um, working with a school and... Um, we had to convert a medical office building to a school use. So it clearly was outside the existing zoning. It was going to require a conditional use permit. And I believe the answer is to pay for the time, right? At least to cover the owner's operating expenses of carrying the building while you're pursuing this conditional use permit. In my example, we were looking to buy the building and it was a 
we had some leverage. So what we did is we continued to make payments into escrow, um, sizable dollar amounts that felt good to the seller, but they were all refundable if we never achieved the CUP. So we carried that building for nine months. We were successful in getting the CUP and all of the money into escrow went towards the purchase price. But fundamentally, I think you need to pay the seller, pay the landlord something for the carry time. If you can cover their operating expense, maybe that's good enough. Similar situation. That's a good one, John. Um, I have a client that during the pandemic uh, went to lease what became life science space in an office building. So I talked a moment ago about conversions. Well, this is one of those conversions where life science client of mine chose to go to a conversion building at a fraction of the price they would have otherwise paid one of the big life science REITs that are out there. Um, and we knew going in, uh, there might be, you know, a zoning issue, but keep in mind for the people that are out there, the landlord was pr promoting this space as life science lab space. When in fact, <laughs> life science and laboratory use did not adhere to current zoning. And so can you imagine if you just trusted the landlord that this building indeed met zoning requirements and you signed a lease and you couldn't actually move in because you didn't actually meet the current zoning regs. Anyway, so we did our homework. We knew that that wasn't the case. Um, we notified the landlord that it wasn't the case and that there was a chance that the city was going to not approve um, our use. And we went to the mayor, literally the mayor's office, to get a zoning variance and a conditional use permit to allow our specific use to be um, permissible in the actual in the, in the building. And it worked out. Um, we didn't actually have to pay into escrow only because we knew this very, very early on. Um, and we simultaneously, as we were going through the letter of intent and um, and, the, and the actual lease negotiation, we were working in a parallel channel uh, with the city. They were thrilled because they just want occupancy in this particular municipality. Um, and so they were, in this case, willing to work with us. One thing that is really important to consider when you're doing transactions like that, uh, and Owen, kudos to you for figuring it out, even when the owner sort of misrepresented what the property is zoned for, right? Uh, when you discover something like that, you can very easily shift all of this risk onto the landlord, right? You can say that the landlord warrants that the building's use is, you know, allows the following. And if for some reason it doesn't, then the lease never commences, Right. I mean, that can be part of the landlord delivery conditions where, you know, they're doing some base building core and shell work. And that part of that landlord delivery condition to tenant is requiring that the zoning works. Of course, that only mitigates some of your risk. I mean, it mitigates your ability to have to move in and start paying rent on a building. But if you're a company that is planning on operating on a building on some you know future date and then three months go by or six months go by and you find out it's not going to work then uh, you've put yourself in a challenging situation where it's probably hard to make up that time and still stay on schedule for that requirement. Anyone have any other thoughts on on how to approach this? I have one more comment, but Brian, why don't you talk about your thoughts and then I'll add in my final piece. We can go to the next topic. Yeah, I think first and foremost, in a standard lease, a landlord's going to try to eliminate any warrants or representations that your specific use works in their building. And and what they'll say is that, well, we're not, we don't run your business. We don't know your business. We, we don't want to take responsibility for your specific use. And first and foremost, if, if the building is being advertised to meet your use, you shouldn't have to pay into escrow. It should be a process that they are aware of um, that you're going to control to make sure that you're comfortable, that your use is 
is explicitly allowed within the building. And I would recommend you bring in local representation to do it because they're the ones that have the, that have the relationships in the town. Even if you have a, you know, a master agreement with a law firm for your leasing, they'll likely recommend you bring in a, a local firm at least for an opinion. And then if the opinion is that your use fits the current zoning and it's not a, a huge investment, that may get you over the, the hump. I know I, with one client, it was um, the building was kind of a, a flex building and they're doing more warehousing than flex, but they still had people there. So it was like, okay, do we fit the, the zoning? And they went to a local firm and it was, they got them comfortable and they're legal comfortable that it did. Others, you truly go to get a, uh, an opinion from the town and the right to do it and, 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 you know, belt and suspenders it before you move forward. If the, if you're converting the building from a different use and you're taking, you know, an office building and making a school, if you're taking a office building and you, and you want to do life sciences, you have to approach it differently and you really have to take a step back and start from very early on. Like you did, John, great, great point. Um, and make sure that you're going, you're using um, local resources to get all of your permitting and all of your special use um, exceptions in line before you close on the building or sign a lease. Because a lot of times, you know, there's a case here with life sciences being such a big part of uh, the community and, and the economy here. But there's some towns that just don't like specific uses. So this is, I think it's like a level three facility that's going to be storing um, some very uh, you know, scary, newsworthy viruses as part of their testing. And the, and the community doesn't want anything to do with it. So it's a conversion of a mall. And the, the, uh, the opportunity to create a life science campus is massive. But the community and the residents are fighting it tooth and nail. So you really have to do your homework and be ahead of it. I just wanted to quickly say to your point, and I think it ties back to what Owen was describing with a variance. As I understand it, a variance is a relatively minor deviation from the existing zoning. And it's, as you say, if you're going to purchase a building, you're going to make a significant investment in the building. I don't think you want to do that based on a variance. That's where you want a conditional use permit that actually gives you the rights to deviate from the existing zoning. So the conditional use permit is a higher level of uh, deviation approved from the existing zoning as opposed to a variance. The other thing that I want to add is we've mostly talked about situations where we assume the landlord is going to be very cooperative. There is another type of structure where, you know, and, and I'm going to use an example of something that like, I don't personally work on these types of projects, but you could see why you need a conditional use permit. Um, say that you found a office building that's freestanding, that's 5,000 square feet, that would be perfect as a indoor swim school, right? So now you need to go into the building, uh, get a conditional use permit. You need to rip up the floor, build a pool, all these different things. Of course, you're not going to start any of the work given the cost until you have a conditional use permit. Say that you're leasing the building, not purchasing. In this type of scenario, uh, let's say that you're also competing with another group that maybe isn't super aggressive and it's not, you know, incredibly straightforward for them. Otherwise, you'd probably lose just by having conditional use permit in general. But the path to getting these people interested is going and saying that you're signing a lease. You have the right to terminate with um, at any point in the first six months and that during that period, you're going to be paying rent, uh, period. Like you have to pay for the time. 
Um, and that that's the way to do it. Or you agree that there will be a um, six month or a nine month security deposit or something that coincides with the time. And that in the event that you're not able to get a conditional use permit, that the landlord gets to keep your security deposit. I mean, that that's the uh, proper methodology for getting a CUP with a landlord that's not willing to give you the time just because. And of course, like an office building that's being marketed as a life sciences campus where any tenant that's life sciences that's going in is going to need a CUP or a variance or some sort of um, adjustment to the zoning to make the property work. That's a very different story. But if you're competing for a property that very well could have interested tenants for a use that's allowable and you're competing against those tenants in real time, then you need to give the landlord confidence that you are going to get this conditional use permit and you're willing to bet real money in the event that you're not able to. Okay. Case closed. Uh, okay. John, one of the topics that you suggested that I really would love to hear more about is this idea of what do you do when listing brokers misbehave, right? Doesn't happen all the time. I can think of a few examples off the top of my head, but I'd love to hear what you have in mind around when listing brokers misbehave and how you handle situations like that. Mm, yeah, I hate I, I hate the notion that we go negative, but the, it's a practical reality sometimes. And here's two things that I have in mind in raising that. For example, um, if you are concerned as to whether the offer that you've been that you've submitted has been conveyed to the building owner. Um, I'd like to believe that that always occurs. That's certainly the, the duty of the listing agent to present all offers. Um, but maybe they have a competing buyer, right? And they make double the commission if the, their buyer wins and ours doesn't. So if there's concern about whether the offer has been presented, um, what to do about that is a tricky one to navigate because I don't like the idea of communicating with the listing agent's client. I think that's a breach of protocol and not appropriate in almost all circumstances. Um, but that sort of segues into the other example I have in mind where listing agents misbehave is when they communicate with my client, which is a breach in protocol. And does that then open the door for me to communicate with them? It's just a mess, right? If people can stay in their lanes, trust the agents to do what is required in presenting the offers, um, but, but so either concern over not presenting an offer and how do we make sure that that offer got to the building owner and or what to do when the parties start breaking ranks and communicating with the other party's client. And just a quick funny story. There's a uh, seasoned broker in our market who's notorious for uh, a listing agent who on every building tour shows up with his business card in hand and starts handing his business card to the, our client as they're touring the building. And I'm thinking to myself, when would my client ever want your or need your contact information to reach out to you directly? That's such a minor nuisance, but uh, he's been doing the business longer than me, so I never. And he might think he's being polite, John. Like how how rude for him to not present his business cards. But yeah, whenever a listing broker does that, I think it very quickly shows that uh, they don't really understand the you know tenant. Uh, tenant broker dynamic at all. I think I pay, I write it off to this gentleman who's a fine broker, just being an old dog. He's just always done it that way. So uh, I have a 100 
an 80 degree different view of this. I, in most transactions that are, that are material, right? Um, at some point during the negotiations, I am talking directly to the owner, period. And, and most of the time it is strategic working with my client who, um, who I talk through a strategy of going to the owner. In many cases, I let the local uh, listing agent know that I'm doing it. Uh, in some cases, if you think that the listing agent isn't fulfilling their obligations um, to their client or to you, I do it without their knowledge. And look at the buildings are owned. At the end of the day, we want to. This is the reason I do it. And some people get upset about it. Most people get it. At the end of the day, I don't lease buildings. I, I never have in my career and I don't want to. So there's no competition when I reach out to the owner. It's in the best interest of trying to get a deal done to do it. And most of the time, um, I am um, articulating a very positive message about the local broker. But a lot of times they just don't get it. Local brokers are, um, you know, they, they're limited by the, the knowledge that they have and you know, I'd hate to say it, there's a lot of brokers in the industry that just don't understand very complex leasing issues and timing issues or client issues that you just want to get to the owner and talk through. And, you know, sometimes they'll be on the calls too. But I think if you're done properly, you get right to the owner. And this, the second there's any hint of, of um, a local broker doing something that's not appropriate or is not presenting an offer, just personally think, go right to the owner. And one, it, it keeps everybody honest that you have a, a communication to the owner. And, you know, you have some owners that will push back. But in the end of the day, my client supports it. They're aware of it. Um, and I do it because it's in the best interest of the deal and in getting the, the, the deal done for my client. I would also add that the vast majority of owners of uh, property where you're doing a large, complicated deal will almost always want to talk to the tenant broker directly anyways. Um, you know, they look at it as, hey, there's some items that aren't really in the scope of a traditional le uh, leasing uh, broker, landlord broker to handle. Um, and I, I would go as far to say that probably 95% of leases that have, you know, call it 50 million, 100 million dollars or more of consideration that I've done. And this is, you know, sample size of probably, um, you know, 50 or 60 of those transactions that size that probably on almost all of them, there's been substantial direct communication between the landlord. And I would say that probably 80% of the time that uh, communication is actually initiated by the landlord themselves very early on in the process. And I do think it helps a lot that we, um, you know, none of us represent landlords at all, right? So no listing broker sitting there saying, gosh, Brian is using this opportunity to become buddy-buddy with my client. And then the next building they develop maybe he's going to get the listing instead. It's a lot less threatening when you're working with a tenant-only broker and it gives them some liberties to be able to maneuver around without potentially really upsetting the, the listing brokers. But I agree with both John and Brian. I mean, I think that um, if you have a personal relationship with the landlord and you let the listing broker know that you know it's inevitable that you're going to be having some direct communication and that it's all going to be in the interest of trying to get the transaction done, which is ultimately the listing broker's job is get the deal done. And you're just going to be able to maybe go about it in a uh, faster way. Um, I think that that is totally fine. I think that uh, you know going around a listing broker 
without letting them know and like trying to get a hold of some asset manager, you don't know who it is, something like that is not appropriate. Um, and that there's a better way to facilitate that. But that's also not what Brian is saying, right? Brian's talking about when he has a relationship or um, they reach out to him. So anyways, just want to clarify that. Uh, Owen, it looks like you've got a couple things you want to add. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, just second on what both you and Brian just said, my favorite transactions are actually those where um, I get to work with the asset manager and the broker. Um, there's a couple build, a couple buildings in Seattle, particularly owned by institutional investors, that will tell you that they hire their broker, who's very competent, who's very good, to bring in deals, right? That broker's job is to know who's in the market, who's looking for space, get them to tour the building, you know, respond to the initial RFP if there is one. And then once you get towards that letter of intent, which still has weeks of negotiation potentially, the owner of these buildings actually gets involved um, and is communicating with me, um, copying in his broker, of course. And it's a very amicable relationship. Of course, we have our own agendas that we're trying to achieve on behalf of our respective clients. But um, I actually prefer working with the asset manager, owner, or whoever that is in that role, keeping, of course, the broker included in the correspondence. Things move faster. Nothing gets lost in translation. And it shows their commitment to getting the deal done. Um, I actually find it frustrating when we're negotiating a large transaction with an owner who's just absentee and actually chooses to hide behind his or her broker. Um, it makes things a little bit more difficult. And to John's earliest point, sometimes I wonder if what I'm saying is even getting through uh, to that owner. And sometimes I've had cases where I finally, you know, have an opportunity to speak to him or her who's in charge and find out after the fact that just maybe what I was saying was getting across, but it wasn't being conveyed in the right light. Um, and once you open up those communications lines, I typically find that things move faster and we achieve what both parties ultimately want to achieve, which is a transaction. So if I can just come back to say that we're, we all agree, um, I was being specific but I agree entirely with Brian, like the most successful transactions are where the listing agents don't feel threatened by our communication with the building owner. And as you say, if it's a large institutional owner and we already know them, and we have a personal relationship, then we can all work collaboratively to that single outcome of getting a successful transaction concluded. And really what I was alluding to is I have a recent example and a story about a mom and pop landlord, a one-off landlord and a, you know, a listing agent that we don't do a lot of business with. And it just gets really dicey. Um, but where we can get directly to the asset manager or the building owner collaboratively with the listing agent and nobody gets their nose out of joint, that's always the fastest, best, most successful sort of path to, to resolution. John, you talked about this last week, but really the solution to most issues that companies find themselves against listing brokers misbehaving or you know otherwise is really just proactive communication, right? If you're concerned that the listing broker isn't communicating your offer, or they're trying to paint your offer in a negative light because you know they might be able to double end the deal if they do it with a client of their own, then I think just having a, a difficult conversation saying, hey, look, I respect your position. Um, I know that you're you know, making a living doing this just like I'm doing it too. We both have responsibilities to our clients and, and, we're, and we're concerned about this. And I'm not suggesting that you would do that, but you know, given the importance of this transaction, we we have to be sure. You know, it, it, having one of those conversations, um, I th I think is uncomfortable, but makes just the entire process easy 
or easier and less uncomfortable by having that conversation up front. Um, let's transition to another topic. So we were talking about this earlier. There's going to be a significant amount of redevelopment that occurs specifically of office properties, but industrial properties get upzoned and built into multifamily and you know so on and so forth. What do you do if you're a company that is in a building, say that the building went from 90% occupancy to 20%, you're the last remaining tenant, landlord wants to redevelop the building, you have fair market value renewal rights or fixed option renewal rights for the next 15 years, they can only redevelop the building if you get out of the way. How do you, how do you approach that? How do you maximize the value um, you know, to your company? And how do you think about that if you want to stay? Yeah, so I have this, I have a great story to tell, which is similar to what you just described. Um, I've got a nonprofit client who's the single tenant of a building. It's about 35,000 square feet. And they had very, very favorable renewal options that I negotiated when they went into the building 10 or over 10 years ago. Well, fast forward to today, um, they actually, you know, the landlord actually wants to redevelop that property to multifamily. And we have two successive five-year renewal options that start in 2024, taking the building out to potentially 2034. Um, landlord came to us and was like, hey, you know, what if I, you know, is there any chance we could, you know, you guys are moving out. We, we knew their intent to redevelop the building because they were kind of vocal about that. They'd been bringing so many third-party uh, contractors and architects through, through the space. And what we actually agreed to end up doing, I'll fast forward to the kind of punchline, is that uh, in exchange for monetary com uh, compensation, um, we agreed to extinguish our renewal options um, for some payment of money, um, which was a windfall for, the school, uh, for this uh, nonprofit. But more importantly, um, we were able to negotiate a short-term renewal option at extremely favorable rates to get us through uh, the next two years, what we kind of redecide re like what the future looks like for this particular organization. Um, so like that was a win-win for everybody because we didn't have to jump out and find a new facility today while we're still trying to figure out what the future is going to look like for this particular organization. And then in addition to that, got a, a sizable um, sum of money that will help fund that future relocation. Um, beyond whatever that future landlord's willing to fund. Uh, that's one case. I'm sure there's others, but that was a case where, you know, we used it to our advantage and, and got a lot of money for it. That's really similar to the story that I have to tell. And uh, mine was a life science client in about 30,000 feet in a 200,000 foot building, which was mostly vacant. And the site was slated for redevelopment. And the landlord could build entitlements for a million square feet of lab development at a time when that lab market was white hot, except the client had successive renewal options at fixed rental rates that were below market today um, and didn't want to move. So, so what do you do? And, and I basically said, well, let me go. They asked me to say, like, what's, a, what's our position worth? So, you know, how do you do that math? Um, and I did it and I came back. And I said, I think it's about $10 million. Like, I don't know that we can get that from the landlord, but you want to know what it's worth? I think it's worth $10 million. What do we do with that? And they said, well, why don't you go 
tell the landlord that's our opinion of what our position is worth and see how they respond. And I did. I took that message to them. You know, this job puts us in some uncomfortable positions, but like to go to this particular life science REIT and say, uh, these folks don't want to move. They're happy where they are. They negotiated these renewal options with the intention to stay. They're, they've got investments. They've got ongoing studies. They, they don't, moving would be entirely disruptive, maybe for 10 million bucks, you know? And so that elevated to the C-suite and the board level, like who is this company demanding $10 million and getting in the way of our 1 million square foot redevelopment? Are you kidding me? And I had images of that little old lady in the house in Manhattan who gets in the way of the high rise office. And so they build around her little house. Right. Um, and w one interesting little side story here where things got tense, that sometimes happens. And the landlord came back and said, well, actually, we're going to build in phases, even though we were in the front building of the complex. Um, and so we're just build around you. And I mean, we're going to apologize in advance for all the dust and the tractors and the dirt we moved and like basically threatening really um, unfavorable work environment for the next 12 years. Well, that's not well received. That doesn't sound like quiet enjoyment. Um, where are we going here? That That's getting pretty dicey. Anyway, um, we kept things from getting entirely uh, nasty and we ended up getting a check for about two and a half million dollars which helped to subsidize the tenant improvement allowance on the new building. And, and it turned out the client didn't really mind moving. There were some things that they were ready to update about their labs anyway. But, you know, we find ourselves in these circumstances and we do our best to represent our client's interest. How did you go about calculating what the cost of you remaining would be? Oh, I could have gone higher. I mean, honestly, it's a million square foot of life science development. You can look at what that project is worth when it's complete, when it's leased up. You can look at... I did a lot of math and then I, I was going to say that 10 million seems light. Yeah. It just was as high as I could go in good conscience. And um, yeah. So I'm, de I'm dealing with the same situation right now. It's actively in negotiations and the, the concept of phasing is real though. Like you, it's hard. And I'm having this conversation. Like uh, I put on the landlord's shoes, like they can build other buildings there and they will have to take, depends on your lease, but they have to take, typically reasonable um, accommodations to to support your your operation but doesn't mean they don't have the right to build doesn't mean that they don't have the right to use the site I would tell you that the the um, that the history shows that you know these sites do get developed around you right I don't think that you can really lean on quiet enjoyment until it becomes a real nuisance up against your building or around you, but you know there's there's risk to that strategy. You may get nothing, and um, you know. So we're trying to to really work with the landlord. We want them to to do it in a in a phased approach. It's a 93, 95 acre site. There's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of um, square feet of industrial distribution. That's in maybe some industrial manufacturing plant in phases, multiple buildings, and we want them to start the back of the site and work towards, we're in the front, we're, we're the most valuable piece of land, in my opinion, um, but we want them to phase it because we don't even have the budget to move at all, right? It's just not in our capital plan, so whatever they can't pay for, we don't, we're not, we don't have it budgeted, uh, but we're willing to negotiate with them and talk through it and see, um, and by the way, getting a check from the landlord doesn't solve 
the capital budgeting side of it on a P&L. So there's challenges both, you know, true dollar for dollar cost issues, but also P&L issues on how the how the accounting works. So we're trying to work through it in a very uh, agreeable way, and we'll see what happens. But it's um, it's a good problem to have, but it's also not a good problem to have when you have a dynamic company looking to to focus on what drives their business and where they can you know continue to add value to their business and their their profitability or their reduction in cost than to have to pivot and spend time and resources of you know our team and their internal teams to deal with it is a problem and you know it's it is an opportunity on paper because you could get a check but a lot of companies just don't want to deal with it like i have got enough problems i don't want to deal with the one that i've kind of put to bed for 15 years with renewal options so um, I see both sides of it, and it's it's not a great situation to be in, unless you know, unless it it falls perfectly where the company ultimately did want to move, and uh, you know, you can play you can play the leverage game and, and get something for it. You can also play the leverage game and lose, right? So you want to be careful we don't, you know, overpromise what might be possible because there's that notion that pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered, um, and I've seen developers before literally been like, okay. If that's the game you're going to play, then we'll do this. And maybe you get a building built around you. Maybe the front entrance of your building or side of the building looks into, you know, their shipping and receiving and dumpster alley. I mean, there's a million things that could go wrong. And so it's just really important. You run the math, you understand the reality, uh, and you don't overpromise or overplay yeah. your hand. Quiet enjoyment, going back to what Brian was saying, uh, violations of quiet enjoyment don't usually allow a tenant to terminate the lease. Right. It might allow them to abate the rent or something like that, but it very rarely will allow you to uh, completely terminate the lease. So you start thinking about, you know, to go back to John's example, you demand $10 million. They come back at, you know, one, you negotiate up to two and a half, which is a great outcome, right? Given the circumstances. And then you say, no, it's 10 million or we're not leaving. Sorry. And they develop all around you and you live in a construction zone for, you know, two or three years only to end up leaving at the end of your lease term because, you know, they now say fair market value rent is higher or something, right? I mean, it's a really risky situation to, to put yourself in unless your, you know, quiet enjoyment has some real tooth in it, uh, teeth in it, which I think would almost need to be like punitive <laughs> in order to be able to get uh, enough that it would really insulate you from that kind of risk, which uh, I've never heard or seen a landlord ever do uh, before. Okay, I want to come back to that point because I have another quick story that's uh, right on point. But I realized uh, there's another part of the story that I forgot to mention. So um, one of the solution, one of the paths for solution was to go out and relocate to a lab building within this building, within this uh, REIT's existing portfolio. And there's a lot they could do in terms of maintaining lower rental rates and games they could play to sort of prevent us from being harmed with a higher rental rate if we could stay within their portfolio. And we tried. And uh, ultimately, we couldn't find a building in their portfolio. So we had to take that check and exit their portfolio and go to a competitor's building. Um, but here's the story I wanted to tell because I did exactly that. I tried to use quiet enjoyment. Um, law firm client in a building that had notoriously windows that would leak when it would rain. And ultimately, they had to go and like reskin the entire exterior of a multi-story, you know, mid-rise office building. To do that, they had to wrap the building with that visqueen 
non-see-through white plastic stuff for a year and a half. Like these tenants were going to work into a little, you know, no natural light getting through. And they came to me and like, this is awful. We have to do something, get us out. And I made, I made the case, like this is to the asset manager, like you can't do that. That's inhumane. These people have no access to natural light and you think they're going to sort of tolerate that for a year? That's, you know, they're entitled to quiet enjoyment in the space and they cannot possibly enjoy occupancy when you've blocked out the light. Then go back and read the lease. There's all sorts of nuance as to whether natural light is an entitlement of a tenant in a lease. Oh, by the way, that asset manager went apoplectic on me. Like, you're going to raise, you're going to threaten to terminate the lease over quiet enjoyment? No. I was just, these clients were friends of mine. And I'm like, yeah, they're going through hell. And we, and by, to your point, we ended up settling for abatement. And then we were able to go get some other interim space because we weren't having to pay rent on the current space. But um, really interesting nuance as to whether a tenant is entitled to natural light or if a landlord can just wrap the building and block it out and expect them to still go to the office every day and pay rent. That was brutal. Okay. Final question. What do you do when you're evaluating a sublease transaction and you're not sure if the landlord's going to recapture the space and you don't want them to recapture the space, but you know that once you submit con for consent, it's the landlord's right to recapture. Um, maybe it's for a partial portion of your space that you want to be able to keep for expansion space down the line. Uh, perhaps it's another scenario altogether. Um, you know, maybe you're going to be making a bunch of money on the sublease and landlord wants to keep 100% of the profits for themselves instead of only getting, you know, 50% of the upside or potentially 0% of the upside, depending on how that lease was drafted. Uh, what do you do about this? Of course, uh, you know, the answer could be make sure that you have really good sublease language and no recapture right. But not everyone has the luxury of having negotiated a perfect lease, you know, five years ago, and they're, you know, have five years left on their lease. So how do you handle this if you have an interested subtenant, you're evaluating what to do. Maybe you're going to make some money on it. It's for a partial portion of your space. You do not want the landlord to recapture. How do you approach that? So can I just take a step back? Because this is it. And I preach sometimes, but some of the most challenging leases I've ever worked on are through my client's acquisition of other companies. And these scenarios you come up with, I've lived them all. And and that we're talking about. And most of them are because they just have very poor representation. <laughs> the leases are very, I got to tell you, so like people listening, you like, why would anyone have a lease where, you know, you don't have to lend it, you don't have the right to pull it back if they're going to recapture. Well, there's, you would be shocked at some of the poor leases that are negotiated. Many people, including attorneys and brokers, they don't pay attention to the, the fine print as you'd like to call it, but and all the stuff is real and it, you have to deal with it. And you have so many clients that, you know, will take a term sheet, turn it into a lease and the brokers never read the lease and it's, or the attorneys, you know, skim through the important parts for them and they don't read the fine print on some of these clauses. And it's scary. And what do you do? You, you, you hopefully you hire a broker that has a relationship with the landlord or has a, uh, the ability to create a relationship. You call a landlord and you get an honest answer because um, that's probably the only bet you have is to go to the landlord and say, look, here's our plan. We want you to support us and we have, you have the right to recapture, but we want to understand, um, we want to understand your plans. And, 
And hopefully you get an honest answer because if you don't have the right to pull the space back, if they're going to recapture it, it's a very challenging situation to be in and one that, you know, I, I, I would tell you, I've never let a client have that, have that language in a lease, uh, but I've dealt with it before. So it's, um, you, you have to have a broker that has the ability to go to a landlord and sit down and have a real conversation and, and um, get a, hopefully get a straight answer. Yeah, I had a client that um, this exact thing was going to happen and they were just like, no, we can't let this happen because we do intend on possibly being here long term and they'd invested a lot of money into their space. Well, it just so happened. And the landlord, I, I did exactly that, Brian. I talked to the landlord and they told me, sorry, but this is something we're going to do for reasons we don't need to get into. So then I looked at their renewal option language, which was incredibly favorable, um, they being the tenant. Right, they had a really, really good renewal option that was not fair market. It was actually a discount to fair market, and depending on where the market might be, when they actually need to potentially exercise, it could be extremely favorable uh, in yield terms that wouldn't even be market. So, in light of the fact that the most important thing to my client was that we were able to sublease a portion of their space and that the landlord was not going to recapture it, I proposed to the landlord. I said, "Hey, understand that's your position. Would it make a difference?" if we amended our renewal option language, um, which the landlord I'm sure perceived we would potentially exercise. And that changed the tenor of the conversation to, this, to the point where they were like, hmm, uh, sure, we'd be willing to potentially look at that. And that's what we ended up actually doing. Um, it di we didn't extinguish our renewal option. We just amended it to be fair market. Uh, what we did extinguish was these incredible favorable terms. That to my client was worth more, or sorry, being able to sublease your space and having the landlord not recapture was far more valuable to my client than the renewal options that we otherwise had, uh, which we actually didn't even end up exercising. I just want to worth. make the point that uh, the recapture isn't always nasty. Um, what we're, you know, if, if you've got a client and they no longer need the building and they find a subtenant and they look to sublease it and the landlord chooses to recapture, that's great. We were trying to get out of that burden anyway, and there's no harm really. In some ways it's, it's a, a better position. You're not stuck in the middle. Um, the times that a right to recapture is harmful is when it's an interim solution for a company that's looking to, you know, get through a difficult phase and do something with part of their space for part of the lease term and losing the space in that circumstance can be brutal. And therefore, the compromise that is often achieved is to say, if I'm looking to sublease all of my space or for all of the term, then, of course, the landlord can have a right to recapture. And sometimes it's negotiated to 50% or more subleasing 50% or more of my space or 75% or more of my space. I'm, I'm more inclined to be willing to yield on those, those circumstances. I've had a instance where I uh, had a client that the landlord did not have the right to recapture the space in any circumstance, even if it was a sublease of the entire building. And we had a interested subtenant who wanted to take it for the remaining duration of the lease on a sublet basis at a discount. But then the landlord also had a group that was interested on a direct basis. And it was not a group in the building where they could, you know, withhold consent because it's a, you know, existing occupant of the building, something like that. Um, and we actually had a strong preference for the landlord to recapture because we were taking a loss on the space. We actually went to the landlord and not knowing whether their deal was going to make or not, we gave them the right to recapture the space with 30 day notice. Uh, or like a, at any point in the 30-day sublease approval process. That allowed us to then move forward, fully execute a sublease, 
with our interested subtenant without losing them and then kick it to the landlord and be like, hey, you now have a right to recapture. We're not violating any of our rights that we've given to the sublease. Like we've you know, provided our full amendments and all that. And we essentially said, look, if you can make your deal in time, great, recapture the space. And if you can't, then you have to approve our sublease. Uh, so there are some instances where strategically you would want your landlord to have a recapture right. Uh, but obviously that, those are um, exceedingly rare. Agreed. And, and, oh, and that's a great point. It kind of, the, the trading it for something, I mean, that's why you need to have a good broker that understands it, reads the lease. The one that I'm using right now, and it's not necessarily recapture, but in, in Tucker, maybe we don't have enough information, but why wouldn't landlord just terminate the lease, right? Or put a proposal in front of you to terminate the lease that's instead of having to amend the lease and then terminate the lease. Um, but I'm sure there's details there that you worked out and that was the right approach. But what I've been looking at now is in in the office market and and um, space that is plug and play has a, you know, has a uh, has a chance to be leased, right, on the office side. And it has a stronger chance than space that's that's built and vacant or even shell space. So what I've been doing with, with my clients is, is, is we're looking to sublease space, go to the landlords and say, look, we're, we're going to try to sublease this space, but at some point, and it's true, at some point we're going to have to go and decommission the space, pull all the furniture out of here. We're going to have to uh, start taking the write-offs because we're not going to take them all at once. Um, and, and there's there's operational needs for the furniture, the operational needs for the AV. But we know if we pull everything out of your building, it's not going to lease. And this works for smaller suites. I'd say, you know, sweet spot, 30,000 feet and below. Some landlords are looking really hard at, okay, we're going to keep this space. It's good furniture. It's plug and play. It's got a good quality kind of vibe to it. it we could, instead of them going in, in subleasing it, Let's terminate it. And you got to be, you know, you've got to look at it from the perspective of we're saving something in a market where you're likely going to save nothing. Um, so that that value of the termination um, to, it obviously floats. But there's value in the marketplace today of your furniture, your, your fixtures, of your AV. So what happens in that recapture? Take it to a recapture phase. What happens in that recapture? Do you get to pull all that out? And why is the landlord recapturing? Are they recapturing because they have a tenant or are they recapturing because the rents you pay are under market? And are those rents under market if you strip the space back to, to the condition it was when you moved in? So that's also leverage if you get in that situation for them to know that this is, what, this is the condition of the space you're going to get back. It may, it may or may not work. But it's certainly working on, um, on termination in discussions with some landlords today. Hey, Tucker, let's add for a future episode to talk about the inverse of this uh, from the other perspective. When we're representing a subtenant looking to sublease space, and often the question comes up, could we just do a direct deal with a landlord? The subtenant is subleasing at a discount. Well, let's just get a check from them to terminate their lease that's going to subsidize our TI. When do you convert a sublease to a direct lease for the landlord? What are the circumstances that make a landlord interested in doing that? What are the circumstances where they're just as inclined to stay out of it? Maybe they stack the financial statements of the subtenant and the master tenant. So I think that's a conversation for another day, but it's the same conversation from the perspective of the subtenant coming in. Yeah, I agree. Fini finishing the, the thought from, from Brian, 
um, and then also your thought, John, uh, but from the sub-landlord's perspective, this happens fairly often. When you're representing a sub-landlord, you have an interested tenant, they come in and say, hey, you know, not only do we want to lease it for the remaining sublease term, but we want to lease it thereafter. Uh, my recommendation to clients is always to do get the sublease done first. Things go, tend to go really badly when you allow the interested subtenant and the landlord to negotiate directly. The landlord has no motivation to make a deal. They're sitting there saying, hey, worst case scenario, I've got four or five years of lease term left. We'll see what the market is in 2027, 2028, and maybe I'll get a way higher rent. So the pricing that these landlords are willing to provide when they already have guaranteed rent from another tenant um, is, is usually pretty poor. And my feedback to the subtenant's broker and also my client is always, hey, we're not comfortable with you negotiating with the landlord directly. We're going to control the process. If you're not going, if you're not willing to engage in our process, we understand. But this is the process. We would love to not be on the sublease either. And if we can fully assign you the lease and be, you know, relieved of all liability, amazing. But that is a step two after we get consent and we have the sublease finalized. Once the sublease is finalized, then we can figure it out. We would gladly terminate and not be on the lease and allow you to go direct, but it has to be after we have a binding and fully consented to sublease. Okay, well, that is all the time we have for episode nine. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back with uh, additional future parts of this uh, topic series. If you have any questions or any challenging scenarios that you are actively navigating, have navigated in the past or think you might navigate in the future, please let us know. You can email us at podcast at thecreinsider.com uh, and we will be sure to include any questions you have in a future episode. Uh, thanks so much for listening and we will be back with another episode soon.